Welcome to the Sacramentalist podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker. Unfortunately, Father Creighton couldn't be here um, because we have uh, one of his fellow countrymen uh, joining us today, uh, Dr. Scott Harrower, who is a lecturer in Christian thought at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He's an Anglican minister and has his PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And uh, most importantly, I believe this is his fourth appearance on the show. Um, yeah, we really yeah, do need yeah, to right. get you a jacket, I think, um, because <laughs> you are now, I, I think, I think you have one more than the next, the runner up, who's, I think, okay. Dr. Right. Junius Johnson, who has three appearances. Sure. So also, uh, it's great to have you on at a time when Melbourne sits second on the ladder in Australian rules football. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a good time to be in Melbourne. It's uh, autumn or fall here and lots of good things are happening. Um, and I love the fact that I've been on the show a few times, mate. I, I think there should be maybe a uh, circle of honor or something like that. You know what I'm saying? There we go. There yep. we go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, I will say I have to be the conflict mediator here that Father Creighton wanted me to tell you that the Sydney Swans are the best Australian rules football team, no matter where they stand in this, in the table. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries at all. I, I understand everyone's loyal to the soil. Uh, that's, that's right. That's okay. Everyone's yes, yes. a homer. Yeah. Listeners may not know this because I, he mentions it every once in a while in passing, but Father Creighton actually grew up for quite a bit of his life in Australia. He, I think he came to, yeah. back to the States uh, for high school and has been here sure. ever since, but, um, mm -hmm. but he, he, good, he's been a lot of time. Yeah. Do what? It's good he went back to America and learned to read. I'm glad. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, well, it's great to have you on. How, how have you been since the last time you've been on? It's been been a little while. Yeah, it has been a little while. Um, uh, well, it's week nine right now at Ridley College. So Mike Bird and I are plugging away with our students. Um, I think one of the lovely things about Ridley is uh, the day begins at 8.30 with chapel teams come in and they uh, they meet to consolidate what they're going to do at chapel, start classes at nine, break, have an hour for chapel after an hour of teaching. So when you're going to chapel, you've, you've had some teaching, then you enter into the worship of God. Then we have morning tea together, which is like very important culturally for us. And then an hour and a half of lectures and then lunch together. So by the time you hit 1.45, you've had basically three hours of teaching, chapel, morning tea and lunch together. And I think it's just a wonderful experience um, for learning, for, for formation, for follow-up. Um, so, for example, yesterday I was preaching away in chapel and. Um, a student wanted to, to follow up a pastoral issue that came up during the sermon. And because we've got morning tea, we could we could go and sit on a bench and talk for a good half an hour, you know. Um, I think that's just a lovely atmosphere in which to, to grow as images of God together, really. And um, I think it's true that God puts people in each other's people as kind of means for flourishing. You know, we, we are the conditions of each other's flourishing to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a lovely time at Ridley, mate. That's awesome. That's awesome. How how does it work uh, in terms of classes? How many how many do you teach at a time? Uh, well, it varies according to to your other duties, but normally you you, you do between three and four subjects mm -hmm. a semester, um, and you'd probably be doing three on campus and one online, and then on top of that, uh, like Mike and I, uh, we supervise PhDs as do other faculty members. So you've got um, a bunch of meetings to do with that, which is lovely. 
And um, yeah, then um, we're kind of known for mentoring. So mm. we've we've got a, a guy in our faculty who's kind of written a book on mentoring and Jonathan Edwards, and he sort of um, has a wonderful ministry and he's sort of influenced the, the DNA of the place. So we're known for that. Um, so it's taken into account as well. But basically you teach three or four and then um, you're you're expected to do pastoral duties, which is why largely we hire fa uh, ordained faculty. Basically um, to ensure people have got, I guess, a good pastoral nous. And have also been, uh, I mean, everybody has to go through all the safeguarding stuff and, and, uh, and, and actually we have compulsory supervision now. Mm. Uh, because of the pastoral ministry that we do in the college. So it's a, it's a really nice, I, I feel like it's an abbey. I mean, that's my ideal vision for a seminary is an abbey. Yep. You come in, you go out on mission, you come back for for refreshment, and the same applies for the faculty, right? Mm -hmm. you, you might go away and be in pastoral ministry for 10 years and then, then come back. I think that's what it means to be church-facing rather than university-facing. Yep. That's really cool. So teaching that many classes at a time, working with that many PhD students at a time, mentoring people with such diverse interests, I'm sure plays a good deal in kind of the first part of what I wanted to talk with you about, which is how you are such a Renaissance man. Um, I, I'm pretty shocked, I think, by the breadth of your work. I mean, you've done a lot of work on trauma and theology. We've had you on to talk about God of All Comfort and Dawn of Sunday. Yeah. You've done centristic work like Trinity Without Hierarchy and the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers. Um, yeah. And you also do biblical theology like Race from Obscurity, which was about women in the book of Luke Acts and yeah. Time for Lament. Um, mm. And so I guess I'm just curious, how how do you do so many different and interesting things at the same time? <laughs> oh, thanks, Wes. Um, I think like you, I'm really curious. Um so um, I remember Graham Cole, the theologian, was once talking to um, a, a friend and I, and he said that theologians like to know a little bit about everything. <laughs> so um, I've been fortunate to, I think, be raised in a in a home where learning was was valued. I also grew up across cultures, so that meant I always had to be looking around and and seeing what's going on and open to new information and so forth. And I just find God and the world fascinating and people incredibly interesting. And um, I think because I teach a range of subjects, it means I have to learn about those subjects all the time. Um, so I think I'm just curious and I'm in a context in which um, we're evangelical, so we use the Bible, but I teach patristics, I'm in patristics. I teach theology, so the Trinity and all that sort of thing. And then um, I teach in our mental health grad um cert so i think that's how it works together it's partly from having been a nurse i guess mm -hmm. in the past and working in research like at the end of the day it needs to be applied mm -hmm. um but I, I guess the big picture for me is god the trinity as the one who kind of made all things and is renewing all things and everything really comes under the purview of the study of the trinity and divine action mm -hmm. that's probably how i i see it being unified yeah, I love that. I'm interested in you, though. Like, you're interested in a lot of subjects, too. How do you find you explore and draw it all together? Kind of the same. I mean, um, I was classically educated in high school. Mm. Well, actually, all mm. the way from elementary school until I graduated high school. And then right. very early on, 
I think it may have been my last year of undergrad, started uh-huh. doing a little bit of teaching um, in a classical context, working with primarily homeschool students, actually. And, yep. you know, having to teach a, a variety of topics, uh, just kind of given the nature of the curriculum and the program that these students were in. And then um, doing that kind of paired with the work I was doing at, in seminary. And I was on the debate team in uh, in undergrad as well, which, awesome. you know, we were doing like democracy promotion in the Arab Spring. <laughs> okay. And then the next year was energy production, domestic energy policy uh, stuff. Right. So, you know, again, kind of just being exposed to all these different things. And um, and yeah, so then, uh, you know, and, and, and those connections kind of come organically. I, I'm sure you can kind of speak to this a little more, but you, you start reading something here and you say, oh, wow, that really corresponds to something I'm learning over here. I mean, I remember yeah. teaching through the uh, through the Odyssey mm. with my students. Um, they were seniors in high school. We were doing the Odyssey, and uh, and you know there are all these scenes where Odysseus reveals himself to uh, to people once he returns home, and he says, "Don't tell anybody." And I'm doing that as I'm also studying the Messianic secret for a class on the Gospels, and I'm like, "There's right. a lot of really interesting overlap." <laughs> um, so that actually was the first paper I ever presented at a conference was on oh, wow. Mark and the Odyssey in this kind of relationship. Um, we've actually had another uh, an actual scholar who who kind of sees those two as very connected um, on the podcast before. And uh, so anyway, so you know these kind of things just just pop up, and and you think that's so cool to see how these things are connected. And if we really do believe, like you're saying, God is the source of all things, then everything points us back to Him. And so yeah, uh, yeah I'm interested in picking up those strands and following them as best as as we possibly can. I think that makes it very interesting. I agree with you. It's very motivating once you start to see connections. Yes, the and first. I, oh, go yeah. ahead. No, no, please. I was going to say the first thing that really, uh, as an undergrad, I did biblical studies. And when I found out about intertextuality, right, um, just within the scriptures, mm. thought this opens up a whole world of possibilities and this complex network of interconnections. And, uh, and But then to zoom out a little bit and see, see that it's not just within scripture that those kind of connections occur, it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess one thing that is nice to talk about is the concept of theological science from mm-hmm. T.F. Torrance and Alistair McGrath. They basically say that um, in order to understand reality, you need to study things as they actually are rather than imposing right. rules that, that we've come up with onto them. So how it works, for example, is there's some recent work in um, psychology that says, you know, there's all this teaching on flourishing, um, biopsychosocial research. But the authors, um, X-Line and Pargament, they say, you know, we need to be able to draw together the research in a coherent way with a spiritual religious framework, even though these two aren't religious at all. But they're like, you need a coherent, coordinating religious spiritual framework. And what T.F. Torrance and Alistair McGrath and Bart would say is, well, if you look at reality, the way things are, there was actually a resurrection in time. And that resurrection in time and space means that it's reasonable for you to begin your integration of biology, psychology, sociology, and the other disciplines into the kind of life that that God has created. And therefore, human flourishing and everything that goes with it, with the Trinity, comes out of drawing things together scientifically from a theological perspective. And I find the idea of theological science 
helps me have a theological framework into which I can reasonably, thoughtfully, scientifically draw in insights from other disciplines. Um, so it helps us be, I guess, like the greats of the past, like Aquinas, um, who, were, who were drawing in the best of um, medicine as it was understood in, in their time, understandings of the person and emotions in their own time uh, within a theological perspective. The good thing is, as time passes and science evolves, you don't drop the theological perspective, but you allow there to be progress in science and you can leave behind, say, Aristotelian conceptions of gender um, as things go on, but, but you never lose your framework, which is different to doing theology under a framework of contemporary science, which will then collapse when that scientific approach collapses. Um, so I, I find the idea of theological science pretty helpful for unifying the disciplines, Brother Walker, as, as I try to read, study and integrate things um, from um, nursing all the way through to theology. I love it. Uh, listeners know I did my thesis on Hugh of St. Victor recently, and Hugh has oh. this great quote in the Didascalicon where he says, learn nothing and you'll see that nothing is super or learn everything and you'll see that nothing is superfluous. And yeah. I love that <laughs> quote. It's a fantastic quote. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you view your vocation then. You're, I, you've already kind of alluded to it a number of times, um, just in terms of being a faculty member at the college, but also being clergy and having pastoral roles there and doing academic work in a way that's church facing rather than academy facing. What does all that kind of mean, really? I mean, what, what, how, how would you kind of summarize your vocation? Yeah, thanks. Um, so well, I'll give a very concrete example um, of how it plays out. We have a shortage of vicars here in Melbourne. We've got nearly 40 parishes that don't have a senior vicar. So over the last year, I've been like, man, maybe I should go back into parish ministry. I've been a, a minister in two different parishes before. Um, and yeah, just like work where the kingdom of God has its nuclei, which is parishes. Um, and so I've been really stressed. Uh, stressed a little bit and sort of thinking through those issues um, where I might serve best. I guess I see myself as someone who's um, within the body, can contribute as a pastor teacher. Um, at the moment, I'm very fortunate that God has surrounded me with um, really great people like Mike Bird at Ridley College, um, which means I can be pretty effective in this kind of academic uh, area. But if um, if Ridley College or, or I left the seminary for some reason, um, that ended, I'd be very comfortable moving into, you know, parish ministry and, and very motivated to do so. I think it's super important. Hmm. Um, so I think that I just see my vocation as I'm in God's hands um, from from this time to the next time. And he, he may lead and enable as he sees fit. But I do recognize that I am wired up a certain way. And... Um, yeah, I, I mean, like you, um, I can handle a, a number of languages and, and dig deep into medieval texts and ancient texts in a way that others can't. And maybe that's perhaps an area in which I can make a unique contribution. Um, but I mean, I guess if you, I really love God and I love God's people and I know that he loves them so deeply that I'm, I'm as equally concerned in their education as their personal development. And if I end up working even in a diocesan role, I think it'd be 
really valuable. So wherever God leads me, I'm just very open. Um, yeah. And th things are going well So at the moment. So I'm just staying where I am. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Maskell, Yale Maskell has, has a great little book called Theology and the Gospel of Christ. And he talks about this, that theologians are not primarily academicians. They are churchmen and churchwomen. Right. Uh, and yeah. that's where theology is really done. Um, and yes. so I love that idea of doing doing um, academic work, church facing, um, ultimately knowing kind of what where those contributions need to lead. Um, it's not just an academic exercise. There's actual application. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. You're at the intersection. Yeah. Of that. So I when I defended my Ph.D., I wore my clergy collar because I was like, I'm here as a member of the church. Um, hopefully you're going to endorse and approve of the academic work I'm doing, but I'm actually doing this within the body of Christ and I hope this is going to serve the body of Christ in in some way um, and help us grow in love and holiness and, and good works. I, I think that actually it's very helpful for us to see ourselves in that way because the world of academia is very competitive. It's very much about... Um, about hyper work and unhealthy patterns of work sometimes and it can lead to relationships between people that are merely transactional but i find as a christian who's cares about the people of god like i would hope that the way that others experience myself and and mike bird as editors for example of this book is that they see us as christians who are who are, who are trying to encourage others to contribute to in a Christian way, and these publications aren't like stepping stones to a career. They're not um, just a matter of getting points. They're, they're not about like, oh, hopefully I'll get a job at Oxford one day. It's not that that at all. And I tell you what, that takes the pressure off mm. because you could see yourself on an academic career path, and that basically you're 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 using every person you know to create your CV. So you're instrumentalizing everybody with a goal that kind of you've, you've um, taken from your culture and you've sort of determined for yourself. And that seems to be close to God's organic calling and just the way relationships work, you know. Um, so I, to be honest, I'm really grateful that I see my vocation within the church because, frankly, it takes the pressure off and it means... I'm probably less of a jerk than what I would be otherwise. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, so given the kind of layered nature of your vocation, what does a day in the life of Scott Harrower look like? Yeah. So, um, yesterday, my daughter and I got up at five fifteen in the morning, drove into the city. Uh, we went for. Uh, that, that took an hour. We went for a walk around the park for an hour just to stay healthy. So um, she then went to uni. I went to Ridley and started working, polished off my sermon for the day. Um, worked at Ridley, um, as I said, with the teaching, the chapel, more teaching, lunch, prayer with a student, some follow-up issues. And then in the afternoon, um, I spoke to Mike Bird about a couple of projects. And I try to get two or three hours in the afternoon to prepare classes, do marking, um, and then I drive home. And then I see the other vocation is 
is like family because in Genesis, it's like you need to till the garden, but you're made to be together, uh, to reproduce, to have families, to develop cultures. So productivity and relations go together. So when I come home, I basically switch off work um, for hours. And, um, I, you know, I actually really enjoy people. So it's not like, oh, man, what a pain. Um, yeah, I love walking the dog, love spending time with Kate. We're a big gaming family. You can see there's Lego and games behind me. And um, we do all sorts of stuff. So the day looks like being heavily invested in people as well. Then at night, because I'm a night owl, that's when I actually do a lot of kind of informal research. So when we go to bed, if I'm awake, I'll go somewhere else. And that's when I do like that concentrated reading. It might just be an hour and it might just be 30 pages. But by the time I've woken up the next day, I've got um, Richard of St. Victor's like Trinitarian theology of love in my mind. So it means it's just percolating away and bubbling away. Um, so that's basically the pattern. I, I get up early, go into work. I either work out or go for a walk, um, work hard doing what I must do. And then in the afternoon, I work hard on things that are coming up. And that could be research or projects or, or marking. And uh, at, on Fridays, like today, I get to stay at home. And that's the day where in the morning, because my brain's kind of freshest, I take the dog puppy for a walk. And then I basically do four hours of super concentrated work. Mm. And, and that's where I bring together everything I've been thinking about in the last week to do with any given project. So I'm, riding, I'm going off to York and to Leeds for some medieval conferences in a month. The Fridays is when I write those papers because I've been thinking about it and reading around it. And now I'm like, okay, how do religious struggles play out in the human heart in these two authors? And because it's been percolating and I've been thinking about it at the gym, if I'm, if I'm free from distraction on the Friday, that's where it all lands. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of my pattern and, and it, it seems to work well. Of course, it's not perfect and there's like medical appointments and, and all that stuff or other things that get in the way. Um, but yeah, that's how I try to do it. Um, I like routine. So yeah. that's sort of how I do it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's good yeah. to know. Yeah. yeah. Well, how about you? How do you include reading and, and reflection? Well, I just finished an interesting book actually uh, right around the new year and I've been trying to take it seriously. It, it was called The Pastor's Bookshelf by a guy named Austin Cardi, who's a, I think he's a Baptist minister somewhere in like South Carolina or something like that. Okay. And uh, and he says that we should, can as pastors, we should consider our reading like a visit. So just like you yeah. said, time, aside time in your past, in your schedule to visit parishioners, um, you, you should set aside time to sit with authors. Um, mm. And he also says to read widely as a pastor, you know, um, mm. thing, fiction uh, can speak to us in ways that nonfiction can't. And so reading yes. novels, great novels and reading uh, non-theology, uh, nonfiction is also good, you know, for us uh, to be thinking about things to see those relationships and interconnections mm. at work. Mm. So I do try and um, and read and I have a little more time to do that right now because I don't have any immediate sort of academic work to do. So, um, so for me, it's nice because I get to, um, 
I have a pretty flexible schedule. So our church office is open on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 10 to 2. So I try Mm -hmm. to be there for that. I teach a Bible study Mm -hmm. on Fridays uh, from 10 to 11 and a couple other things throughout the week. So like yesterday, I woke up at 7. Well, I woke up pretty early, and then we had a Mass at 7.30. So we did that. And then um, I go to the coffee shop. There's a book I'm trying to get republished through Neshota House Press. So I was writing the foreword for that at a coffee shop for like an hour. Uh, Got back to the church administration work our administrators out on maternity leave right now so i have to do all that fun stuff you know so that adds a little extra uh then i go to a brewery or a coffee shop in the afternoon um i like Uh to be out in the community um in my collar i met a presbyterian pastor one day he saw me when i was working on my thesis i would go every morning for an hour and i would say i'm gonna write for an hour it could be 20 words it could be a thousand words but (laughs) it's just gotta i've got to sit down and do it and yeah. uh, this Presbyterian pastor saw me every day and said, do you have a parish? And I said, well, the world is my parish. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I try and go out somewhere and, and, you know, I get to talk to all sorts of people that way and meet people. But if I don't, then I just sit there and work and read. And so like yesterday I went to the brewery and I read some Robinson Crusoe and I read oh, some wow. Brothers Karmatsov because the, yes. we do another podcast uh, about great books. And those are two coming up. Um, right, Pod. And then in the evening, you know, try to be be there, like like you said, with family. You know, we uh, we play pickleball, we go on bike rides, we take nice. walks. You know, and then yeah. once they go to bed, uh, try to try to put in another hour or two of work. Um, yeah. I used to work late into the night, but I'm not as good at doing that anymore and being worth much the next day. So I try and go to bed reasonably. So yeah, it's really interesting. And you know, being in a parish, things just come up, and you just can't plan for it. Yesterday, I had to go give someone yeah. last rites. You know. Right. And, uh, just didn't factor in my schedule initially. And so you got to be yeah. flexible, but I kind of like that. It makes it interesting. There's never a dull moment at least. Yeah, there's never a dull moment, but I, I think, um, I mean, I often say pastors are my heroes because I, I, I mean, they're the midfielder that needs to do everything mm. or, or in NFL talk, it's the, the running back who's a receiving running back as well. Like they block, they run, they receive, like you guys have to do, um, funerals when they pop up, you can't like delay that. You're doing wedding prep, dealing with really complex relationships, also trying to run a parish like financially in terms of policies and, and procedures is really complex. And then you're trying to be a person in relation to Christ and others in healthy ways in a culture that pushes like hyper work, um, promotion status. It's actually, you know, you really you really need to be surrounded by, you know, the company of saints and, and God to, to be helpful. And you guys have to cope with so much unpredictability, which mm. I, I, I think it, it, that's hard. That's really hard to handle. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is we only work on Sundays. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> no, but oh, you're right. You're right. Goodness. I mean, we, so at my parish, we hired a deacon, uh, he came on staff full time. Hopefully, Lord willing, he'll be a priest in um, August, I think. And mm-hmm. um, but just having one other clergy at the church has made a world of difference. You know, it's a it's about 70 percent less lonely. Um, it's nice yeah. to have someone you can just bounce ideas off of. Sure. Um, you know, you know, every pastor has those weird interactions with people sometimes where you think, am I crazy or are they crazy? Yeah. And so it's nice to have someone else to be like, what David, David, am yeah. I crazy? 
yeah so yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. so that's been that's been a huge help just to have that kind of yeah. support and and you know having a diocese that that supports you as well super important so yeah all, just, all that you have to wear many hats yeah. that's for sure you do and and i think that the the mindset of someone who's wearing many hats i mean has to be different to someone who wears fewer hats and is more focused in those areas mm-hmm. um and and in order so for example if you're wearing many hats you have to be in a place in life where you can't let yourself fall into frustration with, with people um because you thought that you could spend two hours on the on the following thing like and i think that that just takes a special kind of grace and concern and 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 modeling god's kindness and that's mm-hmm. hard to do week in week out that's that's why pastors are my absolute heroes i don't know how you do it <laughs> one thing i think that's that's super helpful too for pastors especially <laughs> priests in in our tradition or in the in the catholic or, or orthodox tradition is simply remembering what kind of the heart of our ministry is you know i mean it starts at the altar um mm. everything else is important but it works out of that and um i think sometimes we uh i i think there are some pastors who take on too much and it becomes kind of an unhealthy thing and it's like well we always go back to the altar and that's where everything starts from is here mm. am i am i doing mm. this and then yeah. everything else is a is a is a part of that um yeah and i think that yeah. helps contextualize what we do and you know so the funeral i mean the funeral is connected to my vocation at the altar so i have to drop that and go do it um so is printing bulletins but to a lesser extent you know you contextualize everything around that i've always found that that helps a little bit because we can just get so scatterbrained i think um like you said with the with our unhealthy culture of productivity um or also like trying to please everyone that's really hard so how do you prioritize things you need something to order that and that's where like the sacramental ministry helps you order priorities and also assign resources mm. to, to different ministries and so forth um so i mean also i mean i'm super excited to hear about the initiatives you have in your parish and yeah it sounds like there's a real vitality for you coming out of the central ministries that you offer and it, and it actually reaches out to give love light and life it's wonderful yep yep absolutely so Anyways, well, that that's very interesting, and I think uh, hopefully helpful to people. I mean, I think when we think about academia, it's easy to think about people who are so pigeonholed into particular specialties. And of course, specialization is important, and expertise is really important. But to be able to see oneself in a larger uh, picture, um, both in terms of relation to the church, but also in terms of your own academic work. I think that's really cool for people to see that. So thank you for, yeah, no for talking through that with us. I think that'll no be worries. really, really interesting. Uh, actually, I would make one other point. In my, I've got a, a book coming out on um, third century Christians in Carthage. Of course you do. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and like, how they handle religious struggles, like questions about God, the demonic, moral questions, relationships, and and so forth. Um, I tell you what, though, being an insider, being a Christian, writing on Christians, I think it helps me become more expert the less. Because the idea could be you should be an 
outsider with an objective view on these third century Christians and therefore church life, church participation doesn't matter. Mm. But actually when you're writing on them and thinking about the dynamics of their spiritual psychology, being a Christian and understanding how, for example, fellowship, the Eucharist, uh, might encourage the belief that God is in control of your life. Like you actually understand that as an insider on a different register than a non-Christian would. Um, same with writing on heresy um, in in the second century. Like I can see why church groups spin off into weird little ideas because I, I've been in those churches, y you know, I understand how charismatic, not in terms of spirit, but like, charismatic personalities over time can just lead people not deliberately, not maliciously, but just into some confusion. Um, and so I just think that as a believing Christian, actually you, you can develop more expertise and be more insightful rather than less. And I think that again, just pushes it against this myth of the having to be the objective observer of late antiquity to be an expert. I just don't think that's true. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and what you get, I mean, in a lot of those places, not all, I mean, I, and I'm not, I don't mean to be anti-intellectual, but you know, when you, when you kind of unmoor it from the community of faith, you end up getting basically a re, uh, representation of the scholars. Right. So like the historical Jesus becomes a 1970s white liberal professor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> So it's not like it's it's not like there's really much by way of objectiveness. It's it's a question of 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 our posture when we when we study these things and 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 all that. Again, we let the thing be as it is, like you said earlier. But um, but I do think there's something to that. Um, so anyway, so the reason we have you on today, besides just to talk about all the various things you're into, is because of a book that you edited with Mike Bird called Unlimited Atonement. Amaraldism and Reformed Theology. And I was telling uh, Scott before the interview started, uh, I opened this package from Kriegel and it was this book and it had your name on it. And I said, oh, of course, <laughs> because because you're into so many different things. And so that's one one of the reasons why I wanted to have that conversation with you about, about how you do all that you do. But yeah. I think our listeners may be initially surprised a bit to hear us talking about a book uh, that has Reformed Theology in the title. Um, but okay. I do think Amaraldism is a is really a very interesting idea that deserves some attention. I actually think there's a lot of overlap with people I know. So, I mean, I have many friends in the sort of Wesleyan Arminian camp who, yes. while maybe not agreeing on some of the finer points, uh, will agree generally with the approach. And I even think a good number of a good number of those who would identify themselves as Catholic in some way would would um, would resonate with some of the things that are said here. But perhaps we could step back and just say, what is Amaraldism? Sure. So Amaraldism is a view within the Reformed uh, camp that says that Jesus died for the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world. Um, so his death is sufficient for all, and it's applied to the few. What this view tries to uphold is passages like what you find in John's Gospel, where he's the lamb who takes away the sin of the whole world, that God, for because God so loved the whole world, he sent his son 
um, so that those might, who might believe in him might have life and not perish. So it's trying to uphold the, the greatness of God's loving intent towards humanity, the huge scope and extent of the atonement, whilst also holding together the fact that ultimately it's only applied to the few. So the, the two views that are on either side of this are limited atonement or particular atonement. Uh, this is a view that Amoraldians like myself reject, and this is the view that Jesus only dies for the sins of the elect. That's one view. And on the other side, we might say that Amoraldism uh, rejects uh, universalism. So he, he dies for all and it's efficient for all. So amoraldism or unlimited atonement or also called hypothetical universalism holds that Jesus' death is sufficient for all, but it's applied to the few. Um, it's a view that's got very strong Anglican roots. There's sort of two, two um, camps. There's the French group named after Moise Amaralt that they were reformed people who didn't buy five-point Calvinism and they're the kind of original four-point Calvinists. They, they hold to, you know, total depravity, um, un, uh, unconditional election, not limited atonement. And so, so that's the, the, what they drop out of the tulip is the L. They don't buy limited atonement. So it was like a French camp and then there's this Anglican um, camp. Um, and the Anglican camp is kind of um, a number of bishops um, who basically were Calvinists, but again, didn't want to buy limited atonement as part of that package because they didn't see it in the Bible. And interestingly, a lot of them were um, those, you know, those bishops you got that were like scholar bishops. Mm -hmm. So it was those kind of scholar bishops who wouldn't buy five-point Calvinism because they rejected the limited atonement perspective. So that's, that's what it is. Um, sufficient for all, applied to the few. Um, it's against uh, limited atonement. It's against uh, universalism. It has a French source and an Anglican source in the 1600s. And I reckon it does the best job of dealing with the all passages in the Bible to do with atonement. That That's why I'm in that camp. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm. Now, I don't want to mischaracterize the sort of traditional Calvinist argument, but from my conversations and reading, when you when we talk about limited atonement and unlimited atonement, um, typically one of the arguments they'll use is something like that that if um, if Jesus' death was for all people, then it would be a sort of uh, waste or excess because obviously not all are elect. And so I'm just wondering how Amaraldism might respond to that objection, assuming that is sure. a cogent objection. Yeah, so I guess I guess where I want to start is with the fact that um, in John 3, for example, Jesus talks about Moses lifting up the serpent, um, which is a prefiguration of the cross. Whoever looks to that serpent doesn't die of the poison of the snakes that have been biting the people. So it's lifted up for the whole people. It's sufficient for them all if they want to look up. 
those that don't look up die of the poison because they've been bitten by snakes. But those, Jesus says, who look up and see the sun glorified on the cross, those who have faith, they're saved. So it seems to me that Jesus dies on the cross, and that's sufficient for whoever turns to him. The idea of waste, I don't think, is part of the purview of these passages. Um, in Isaiah 53, it talks about the, the suffering servant who comes, and he, he dies for the people. But then by the time you get to verses 11 and 12, it, it's particular, those whose transgressions are forgiven. So I just think that in terms of the way that the Bible has it, it does speak universally uh, in terms of the offer, but particular application. And that's what unlimited atonement is trying to capture. Well, it's kind of like there the, are, sorry. I was going to say it's kind of like the older brother in the parable, right? Uh, you know, the party is for everyone. He decides not to go back in. Yeah, ex exactly. Um, so, so there are objections to amoraldism. Um, there's the double payment objection, for example. There's a waste objection that you mentioned. I, I don't think the waste objection ever comes into the worldview of the biblical authors. So, I just don't think that's a problem. Um, the double payment objection is like, well, if Jesus died for the, sin, the sins of these people, why do they suffer in hell right. afterwards? Like, you've got two payments. I think it's important to point out that actually they're different kinds of payments. Um, one is a payment for sin. The person in hell is not atoning for their sins. Mm. It's punishment for sin, where the death of Jesus on the cross is atonement for sin. They're, they're two different types of deaths. Let's not collapse them. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, to be frank, I think limited atonement is basically um, a collapse of biblical passages. It's where people see that there are lim passages that deal with limited application, so they try to collapse divine intent and the extent of the atonement into the limited application. So it's, it's a reductionistic approach to Scripture. Where, where the, the fact is, um, throughout it, it's universal in extent and scope, but applied to those who would have faith. So that, that's the guts of it. I mean, we can keep on going from there. Well, I am interested in one more uh, kind of way to understand the contours, at least, of, of the position, because you mentioned it's basically four-point Calvinism, or at least it was yep. for the French uh, iteration of it. So I'm assuming that and, means... And same, that for the, same for the Anglican as well. So that so there's still an emphasis on irresistible grace then, or or a belief in irresistible grace. So I'm wondering if um, if the if the death of Christ is for all people, and if irresistible grace is true, then why why only are the elect irresistibly drawn to God? And I know this is a whole host of this is a whole can of worms, but. Well, well, I mean, yes and no. So, so let's start with the idea that there is a sufficiency efficiency distinction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sufficient for all, efficient for the few. Um, and that goes back to Lombard. So that's been in Christian theology forever. Um, well, okay, why is it efficient for the few? Well, it's efficient for those who would have faith. So. It's those who have faith who avail themselves of the benefits of the cross. 
but the gift of faith is from God. That's the that's why this view fits within Calvinism, right? Because because at the end of the day, we're saying people are totally depraved. That they they don't have the capacity to turn to God in faith without monogistic assistance from God. So therefore, there is election where God elects and enables some to have faith, to avail themselves of what's offered to all, and they are the few that avail themselves. Right. So there is election, there's an irresistible grace that relates to receiving and having the faith to avail yourself of what's offered on the cross in the first place. Mm-hmm. So th- that's why this view is still a reformed view. Um, the view assumes depravity, election, grace and perseverance it just rejects the l the limited atonement right yeah very Um, interesting so yeah the the reason we came up with um with the volume was that ridley college is a reformed anglican seminary um and we have i guess 50 percent of our students are anglicans the rest are baptists some prezies and and charismatics um and we were teaching away and there was plenty of like books on particular atonement, limited atonement. There's a whole lot of stuff on universalism, but there wasn't anything for reformed people who, who reject limited atonement. So Mike and I were just talking at morning tea, just kind of ruining the fact that there was nothing helpful. And we were like, well, you know, surely we know some people who are also Emeraldians like us. Um, and then I got talking to Oliver Crisp at a conference and I was like, hey, mate, you want to write a paper? And he, he said, yeah. And so then we started talking. We've got um, some re- great theologians and historians involved. Yeah, I was going to ask if you wouldn't mind uh, telling telling some people who, who are involved in the project. Yeah. So basically we have people from uh, across a number of denominations. We have Anglicans, um, Baptists, we've got some Wesleyans as well. Um, so we've got Oliver Crisp writing about Anglican hypothetical universalism or amoraldism. Um, that's a great essay that gives you an insight into the sufficiency efficiency distinction. Um, obviously, Mike Bird's writing, and he he's talking he's writing about how this relates to covenantal theology. So I mean, you're getting pretty rich uh, reformed theology here. Chris Wozniacki, he writes about amoraldism and penal substitution. So he's trying to say, how does amoraldism work with Jesus dying on behalf of a person's particular sins? Then we have, um, you might know R.T. Mullins, the philosopher. Do you know him? I know the name, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's got a pretty pretty big podcast, the reluctant um, theologian. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a philosopher, so he's contributing a piece on how the doctrine of unlimited atonement relates to the doctrine of God, which is a huge interest of mine, because I think that if you believe in limited atonement, it actually shifts your understanding of God's intent and motivations towards humanity. So he he writes on that. So he's a a philosopher. We've got Jonathan Routledge, who works at the Harvard um, Center for Flourishing. He works on unlimited atonement and and the nature of forgiveness, which is very cool. then we've got um, some Anglicans, Josh Farris and uh, Mark Hamilton, who um, 
they're, they're working on, on Lombard, Ames, and some Anglican figures in terms of the atonement. Jeff Fisher, who's um, from the Reformed Church, um, he basically gives us the fascinating life story of, of Amaralt himself. Then we've got some, some Aussies involved because we actually have a decent tradition of um, four-point Calvinism here in Australia. Um, and so we've got a um, more college, you might have heard of them. They're very kind of uh, more conservative than Ridley, mostly five-point Calvinists. He does an essay on D.B. Knox, um, his history as a person, um, and, and the Aussie context. And then, then we have some others who are doing like the ethics that come out of um, hypothetical universalism or amoralism. So that's that's the volume. We've got a great sermon at, at the end of the volume by my um, good friend Amy Peeler as well. So th they're a mix of people, but I would say the majority are Anglicans. Yeah, so maybe 60% are Anglicans. Um, the others might be like Wesleyan, Baptist, that kind of thing. So it's very interesting for me that actually Amaraldism might have a key role in Anglican theology which again is interesting. If we are the via media, it makes a lot of sense, you know, that we would have this kind of a, a theology to do with the atonement. Mm. So it's unsurprising to me, and it's got kind of explanatory scope for the kind of people that Anglicans are. We're not wedded to Calvinism with with a fist, um, but you know, we we may uh, resist. Limited atonement and universalism, I think, isn't really at our heart either. So I think emeraldism is a good place to be. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, hmm. Actually, so that might be. To... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, normally, like with the Trinity volume, like you, what you do is you're like, what do we believe? Okay. Unlimited atonement. What does it mean? So, definitional essay. Then you always have like a couple of biblical ones. Where are you getting this from? Then did anyone hold this over time or is this just a minority fringe um, fake news kind of thing? Then it's nice to have a couple of essays that deal with objections and we've got those. Um, and then like the ethical and pastoral outworkings are important too. So the, in the volume, there should be a couple of essays that most people are interested, whether you're coming at it biblically, conceptually, pastorally, ethically. Um, or just historically, um, you know, there's a funny thing. When I studied French at uni, um, our lecturer was really cool. And he used to have us like learn French by just, yeah, we did paradigms. We just had to read volumes of French. And he was like, you'll just get used to it, basically. The books that he gave, <laughs> gave me, they were like, there were these baddies who were like kicked out of France by the goodies. And as I read about the baddies, I'm like, I don't think these are the baddies. It was a story of Mose Amaraut and his followers. Really? <laughs> I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea about this. <laughs> I had no idea. But as I'm reading, I'm like, am I like with the Joker here? Because like these baddies actually sound like goodies to me. That's <laughs> amazing. Years ago. It was so funny. And then it turns out it was them after all. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. That's great on a few levels. I love immersive language learning if i could go back and redesign latin curriculum that i teach it would all be immersive because it's so great yeah. but that's hilarious yeah. <laughs> that's funny 
uh, they were so uh, actually that might be helpful to talk a little bit about the context in which that this view kind of did spring up, especially in France. So obviously yeah. there is a French Calvinist streak. Most people will have heard of the Huguenots. Um, yes, and of course yes. they were they were not treated particularly well mm. or chunks of the history. Uh, but uh, mm. but but were, how what was the relationship like between them and the Almeraldians? I mean, were they were there, was there a lot of overlap or were they very distinct groups? There is. If I, I would like to follow this up by looking. So I'm from Huguenot descent. So I'm super interested in this. Um, the the Huguenots that ran into England seem to have had a strong influence on uh, preaching and theology in England. And I've been able to find a few um, old works where they mention the influence um, of the Huguenots as Amiral as Amiraldian. The, the question really is that there's a difference between the French view and the Anglican view. Because in the French view of Amiraldism, and I think this is why the French view never really took off in England, basically has two stages in it. The first is like a conditional will of God where, where God is like, he wants to save all humanity depending on their faith, right? That's, that's kind of the first move within God's will. Um, so what happens is God has his first will to save all, but because they reject him and he knows they will reject him, he has a consequent and secondary effective will that's focused on the few, right? So the Anglicans basically are too practical and they go, nah, don't worry about like two conceptual logical stages in God's will. Um, God simply wishes and wants everybody to be saved yet gives the gift of faith which means that people can trust in the atonement to the few so that's really the difference this two stages in god's will in the french view that that stopped the french view i think taking off in england so i think the huguenots played a role in that early on they were influential towards something like a sufficiency efficiency distinction but but because maybe they held on to that two-stage view um the view then took off in its own english anglican form and didn't retain the french form amongst the anglicans that's something i'd like to dig into um but it is true that many of the french refugees that went to the jersey islands in england and so forth uh were four-point calvinists interesting very interesting yeah yeah. I just finished reading and, the Three Musketeers, yeah. where, oh. <laughs> where where their city is being besieged and the English are coming to help them. And it, yeah, so yeah. Anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen their their cross? It has the the dove on it. Yes, mm -hmm. the Huguenot cross is so cool. Yeah, it is very cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's funny. I love yeah. that. Well, um, I think the only other question I have kind of touches on something that you've mentioned already a little bit um listeners will remember that we've had some interesting discussions about universalism recently we had david billy hart uh we got no share of no small amount of grief for that um we also had oh, father al kimmel kimmel who's who's pro-universalism and then we had archbishop mark haverland of the anglican catholic church who is a little bit more I, i'd say he's maybe a little more von balthasarian in his posture towards that question but yeah, okay. Um, 
I, I, for me, it's always an issue. I, it's always something to wrestle with. I, I, I think I kind of return to the Von Balthazarian kind of hope. But um, but I am interested. I mean, I think if I was a Calvinist, I would be a universalist. Um, okay. What do you mean by that? Uh, I think that? I think if I believed in irresistible grace, and if I believed in the in the sort of uh, a priori like God desires all to be saved, uh, then I would kind of the the logical conclusion for me would be to be a straight up universalist. But I I kind of yeah. fall back on on this sort of hopeful posture. Maybe it's because I don't uh -huh. have a spine. I don't know. Um, but I'm I am curious, kind of uh, why not just go all the way become an actual universalist what 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 is it about hypothetical universalism and and you've kind of alluded to this already but i i'd, I'd love to draw it out a little more what is it about hypothetical universalism that really uh kind of clinches it for you or makes this the most uh accurate position well so i think you know i'm super influenced by john and isaiah and it seems that in both those books there is a, a big view that God has that, that he loves the world. He made all things and he, and he loves them. Um, yet there is a focus down on um, the particular people of God. So, yeah, he takes away the sins of the world. Whoever looks up to, to the cross is saved. Eternal life is given to them. But at the end of the day, like Jesus is the good shepherd who calls his own. They know his voice. He knows them by name. They're going to come into conflict with the world and they're only going to survive because the spirit uh, comes alongside and the Trinity dwells within John 14, 23. Um, and it's in keeping God's command to love, which is a particular kind of love, that this community is known as God's community. So it just seems to me that there's such a, a difference at the end of the day between God's flock, God's bride, and the world that I can't say that the world is is saved in the same way that, mm -hmm. that the, the, the particular flock is saved. And then, um, helpfully, I think all the work that um, I've been doing in the second um, century in terms of um, orthodoxy uh, apologists evangelists and theologians uh, like like in rome alexandria i mean that none of them are universalists like th right. they're just not and the apostolic fathers so the disciples of the disciples are pretty clear on on the importance of belonging to god in a special and particular sense rather than a general sense so so for me biblically and historically i can't be a universalist. However, I should say emotionally, I want to be a universalist because the majority of my family aren't Christians. So, and Australia is largely non-Christian. We're a real minority here. Um, but but I'm willing to hear hear back from you. Uh, I mean, how does that sound? I mean, well, I um, I guess it's interesting. It makes it very interesting. I I um. I certainly believe there's a distinction between church and world and that that distinction needs to be maintained biblically. And, and it certainly is historically. Um, I guess where I, uh, and, and, and this is not just true of Calvinism, actually. I mean, I actually think this is true in Aquinas. It was true in Hugh of St. Victor as well, where you get this kind of view of, of, yeah, there's this elect group 
And then there's this reprobate group and the reprobate group is sort of created. And, and I'm not saying you've said this, but just in general, the, the reprobate group is created uh, sort of for this kind of damnation. Um, if God has uh, the power I... to save them and he doesn't, uh, you know, I, th this raises some interesting questions, I think. And then, of course, like in Thomas, you mm -hmm. have this view, you know, of the elect in heaven having this kind of window into hell to see their sufferings. And and in their sufferings, we're even more transfigured. Um, and right. I, I, I find that to be a little disturbing, <laughs> uh, more yeah, than a that, little disturbing. Um, yeah, so do I. And I yeah. think that that's like gross and really inappropriate and, um, you know, a really, really gets at the very fringes of Christian theology. Um, so I guess um, for me, I understand why you'd want to reject that kind of, that kind of view. Cause I do too. Where I, where I always fall back. And I, again, I, I don't have a super well-defined position. It's an, it's a topic of great interest and I do a lot oh. of reading and listening about it, but I just don't have a, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the mat for any particular view on this at the moment, Yeah, sure. but uh, I do fall back on the prayer of humble access. His property is always to have mercy and I don't know what yeah. that means, and I can't tell him what to do because yeah. he's his ways are our ways. But I do find great yeah. uh, comfort in that. I mean, I have family who, you know, I, I had a grandpa who passed away who's he's was kind of nominal Catholic. You know, I I don't know. He was baptized. God's property mm -hmm. is always to have mercy. I pray for him, uh, yeah. but I you know I don't know. It's not my not my place to say at the end of the day. And so uh, faith uh, is kind of the only way to fall back, which. Sounds like a cop out, I guess, on my end. But uh, his property yeah, is mean, always it, to have mercy. I mean, the thing is that that's true. Like when God reveals His name to Moses in Exodus, Moses wants to see His power, glory. God reveals His goodness, right? Mm. And and He does talk about mercy, and He also talks about judgment. How that works, um, I think, it is not fully known to us, right? And so. Um, the great Catholic theologian, um, Father White, I don't know if you know him. He works at the D Dominican Institute. I, I know of him. I've, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he's amazing. And he, um, I mean, he, he holds kind of the very similar position to myself in terms of soteriology. But he wants to say that, like, there are, there are moral reasons that God has that we simply don't understand. Right. And that we are actually left in a position, like you said, that does call for faith because these debates about how you line up scripture with one another, you're often missing a vital piece and you have to fill that in yourself. Mm -hmm. And what do you fill it in with? Like for me, it's creedal and conciliar theology, but he basically says there are eight mysteries, which are the Christian faith. And it's understandable by why sometimes in different doctrines, like Different people play the mystery card at different places in different doctrines. That's what he's observing, right? Um, so so I, I am very slow to push people to come to a position if they're still exploring it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so that's why when I said I want to hear from you, it's not to go to war. It's just to hear about where we're at. Right. So whether we're discussing Trinity, early stuff, or this view or ethics, I'm always about time and, and just... Let's wait to think it through because you've got to wade through a mystery. Yep. Further up and further in, right? Yeah, over time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, this is yeah, been yeah. Well, thanks, thanks for discussing discussing that. That's really cool.
Yeah, yeah, very interesting. It's very nice interesting. for the podcast listener to hear from the host. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, yeah. and it's it's fun to have a variety of views and perspectives on this. I mean, uh, you know, like I said, given kind of where we come from, we don't do a lot with reform theology. And I, I think having those dialogues is very interesting. And, and I think yeah. we can all learn from from it and so yeah I, it's always exactly. a, and it's always great to have you on anyway so uh, it's just fun oh, no any way. excuse we yeah, have so. to get you on is is a good one <laughs> in my view yeah. well great well as we come to a close time for everybody's favorite segment what are we into so what are you into these days okay um i am into tabletop gaming still um but we are into a heavy lego phase as well we have a tv show here called lego masters Yep. Where normal people do you have that in the States? I think we do. I think uh Will Arnett hosted it, uh, if I remember okay. correctly. I don't know if it's still on, but I think he did. Right. Yeah. Here it's been a smash hit. Um, maybe because we got locked down for 262 days last year with COVID. <laughs> but like we're all into Lego. And um, so yeah, we we um we're building um all kinds of sets. Um I'll I'll tell you a fun way this is gonna play out. Um it's my wife's birthday on Saturday. Sorry, it's Mother's Day on, on Sunday. Yes. And I'm having the the kids. We've got three adult kids. They're coming over. We're going to have lunch. But then what we're doing is everybody, we've got this huge box of like minifigures and Lego. Everyone gets 45 minutes to get into the minifigures, get into the Lego and build a scene where they remember a nice time they had with my wife, Kate. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that is really so, cool. So we're going through a deep... Uh, fun lego phase it's i, I love it yeah. and this is instructive for listeners listeners if you haven't planned anything for mother's day yet <laughs> Hot there you go yeah <laughs> how about yourself what are you into this oh well i have been saying um in the past couple episodes it's not hockey even though it is hockey um, we talked about this. In fact, the game is on right now and we're having this conversation. Um, so that's dedication, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, so there's that always going on. But um, but I do think actually games for us, my wife and I uh, love to play games. We have two young boys, uh, five and two and a half. So they're I mean, we play some games with them, but, you know, they're all kind of kitty games still. We're very much looking forward to when they're teenagers and we can have, you know, real family game night and stuff. So we play yeah. a lot of two player games, my wife and I, okay. after the boys go to yeah. bed. Um, uh -huh. And it started with kind of easy games, backgammon, Mancala, you know, stuff like that. But we've really found kind of this whole uh, sub genre of games for two players, you know. And uh, yeah. so, so we play a lot for almost every night before they go to bed. And one game that I got, I think for Christmas, but we, we just started playing it recently is called Critters at War. And uh, okay. it's a okay. card game. Uh, yeah. And it's just, it's just a lot of fun. You know, it's kind of, okay. uh, it's kind of, you, you each take turns and you have to win a certain number of, uh, of theaters uh, in this war and all the cards okay. are these kind of cute animals fighting each other. So I don't know. Okay. It's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, we're playing a, a few critic games. There's one called Root, which is a forest yeah. game where you try to take over that one. And then there's Everdell, which is like super cute, a resource building, foresty game. Um, yeah, but this one sounds good because it's two players because there aren't that many good two player games. That's what we found is that, you know, we'd buy yeah. these games and it's like, well, we have to have four people. And so it's either when our parents are visiting or we have people over, which is great to have those on, on deck. Mm. But Right now, it's most of the time it's just us, so we we do a lot of two player games. So uh, yeah. that's been one of our favorites. We play a game called Quicks, which is a dice game. 
we okay. do that a lot and um we play a game called next station london which is uh, uh you you connect uh train lines like you're building a, a sub oh is that there. like ticket to ride uh sort of it's a little more strategic i think and it's designed for oh, right. Well, I think you can play it with up to four players, but it's really it's a good two player game. So anyway, so we're doing all that. But Curter, it's so we're always looking for some. So listeners, if you have one that you yes. like to play that's two players, let us know. My wife and yeah, I would really do. appreciate it. <laughs> please do. Like I'm actually super interested in this. Yeah, um, yeah. We play a lot of like Magic: The Gathering, but to have less like games, like a break and a and a different kind of mm-hmm. game, that'd be. I'm super interested. Oh, yeah. Magic the Gathering is fun. We used to play that in my dorm uh, in college. Every I night, love home, that we'd game. all get home by about midnight and we would play for two hours. Yes. It well, I, awesome. I'll tell you what's exciting. There's a, there's just been a Magic um, the Gathering crossover with 40K Warhammer, which has been great. But there's one that's coming out, which is a Lord of the Rings crossover. So you oh. can get like the Shire, the Hobbits, um, like different wizards and all that kind of stuff. Like, man, I'm. It's like two months till it comes out. I'm so pumped. That's um, awesome. Yeah, we we still play that. I love that game. That's another one when the boys are older. We'll definitely. Now, oh, yeah. I, I got to tell you a funny story because um, we yeah, played this on. recently. Um, so when I was raised, I was raised evangelical uh, uh-huh. in America, you know, so that has a number of uh, connotations that come along with it. But we we um, all my friends in the neighborhood love to play Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic and Pokemon yeah, and everything. Yeah, but cool. but we weren't allowed to play it. So we found there were these like Christian alternative games uh, to Imagine. those games. Yeah. So there's one called um, called Mission, which is at, way out of print. I mean, it's been out of print for years. But I found it when I was back home visiting my parents and brought it back. So my wife and I played it recently. Yeah. I mean, it's so cheesy. You got these lost souls and you're trying to save them. And then the other oh, player right. plays like these demon like cards, you know, to prevent them from oh, being okay, okay. <laughs> So you win when you have a certain number of lost souls, you know. And then there's another one called Redemption, which is still in okay. print. And it's basically wow. it's basically like magic, and you can buy all these expansion packs, and they're biblical characters, and they have attack defense ratings, and you you know you really? attack your op- opponent, and um and they defend with you know it's 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 Man. pretty awesome, it's pretty fun, That's amazing. But they're they're so very I, cheesy, I, of course. You might be Ezekiel fighting yeah. me with your rod against uh say Aaron with his own stick, magical stick. Right, right, right. Yeah, or like Pharaoh will attack, you know, uh, Paul or something. You know, cool. So you have like plague cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yes, turn to blood. You know, red. You know, (laughs) it's pretty awesome. A green card, frog pestilence. I can just see it. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Once you start, the cards kind of write themselves. Really, you know. (laughs) Yeah. That's fun, man. They used to have, I don't know if they still do. I knew they used to have tournaments and stuff. People would drive, you know, hours to go play, just like uh just like Pokemon yeah. and Yu-Gi-Oh. So, anyways, so yeah, it's uh if you're ever but, I if mean, you're ever in a Christian fun. bookstore, look for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we play like tournaments still. Oh um, nice. like with our son and everything. Um and man, I would love to go to see that tournament and see how it relates to like normal gamer culture (laughs) yes 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 oh Oh, man thank you so much for that i'm gonna go go down a rabbit hole in australia i don't know if this is the case in australia i'd be interested to know i i feel like there's been a weird there there used to be stores that were sort of dedicated to games 
here. And so they would often host Magic the Gathering tournaments and, and other kind of collectible card game tournaments. Um, and they still do. There are still some, but I think, you know, like, like especially in our area, it's so expensive to rent a storefront, you know, so they don't. Oh. A lot of those places, I think, went out of business. You find some every every now and again. A lot of times I've noticed Magic the Gathering tournaments being held at vape shops, like vape lounges. Oh, yeah. Is that is that yeah, similar right. there? Um, so we we still have a big culture of um, game stores. So like every Thursday night, there's an infinity mm. uh, sort of group that, that plays, and my son and I love going there. And Friday Night Magic is huge. So we go to releases and tournaments and stuff on Friday nights. And within, like, there's a few suburbs here where within 3Ks there's a number of shops. Um, even though there's, like, online magic, people here love the face-to-face magic um yeah and vaping stores haven't really taken off you can buy vaping but you normally just buy it at a cigarette shop and take off you don't sit around um the place you do find people sitting around playing magic is um is at uni campuses universities um but basically if you want to play magic these days you just go to a local shop and it's fun that's awesome yeah i think i think that's a really cool uh way to build community and stuff yeah yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast as Anytime. always. The book is Anytime. Unlimited Atonement, Amaraldism and Reform Theology. You're the editor. Mike Bird is the other editor. Um, so listeners, feel free to check that out. Um, and also uh, feel free to check out our Patreon. You can join it for $5 mm. a month and join the Patreon communion of Patreon saints. Um, we are actually getting ready to start a study, uh, I believe, it will maybe have already gone for a week once this episode's released, but we're going to be going through Curday's Homo by Anselm. Um, that won the poll. We we polled all of our people, and that's what they wanted to study. So we're going to do that, I think, on Monday nights um, for the summer. So that'll be a lot of really enjoyable. Um, so anyway, so yeah. we would love to have you that's join us awesome. for that, uh, listeners. And uh, yeah, you can like and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And we're also on YouTube now. That's why... I told Scott to wear uh, something uh, impressive, and he certainly did. Um, so if you're listening to this, you have to go to the YouTube and at least at least check that out. Uh, so, anyways, well, uh, Scott, would you would you mind closing us in uh, in prayer? I'd love to. Thank you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We praise you that you have called us to yourself, that you declare us to be your kids, that you've brought us into an organic union with yourself. Thank you that you dwell within us, that you're growing us in love and light and life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you might make known to us the deep callings you've placed on us, that you'd help us to be loving and holy persons so that others might grow in communion with yourself, with one another, and be good for the world. Father, we thank you so much for the life that you've given us and we we praise you for your son who was lifted up for us and we ask that by your holy spirit you might draw us to love you and love your people and the world every day more amen